We are, this summer, traveling through a series on Sabbath called Reminder Rest. It's a reminder that we don't always have to be producing or problem solving, but that sometimes we are called to just be. And it's a reminder also because in God's first command to the Israelites to Sabbath, it was remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, not to create one. Which means that there is something in our very being, in our very bones, that should remind us we are supposed to rest. That we are created, not the creator. So remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Pay attention to the need, the direction, the necessity of rest. Today we're talking about rest in a little bit broader sense than just within our own bodies. We're still talking about how we can stop producing as much, but perhaps with a little bit different sway on production than we've talked about in the last few weeks. Literally, we're talking about what we are producing as a civilization that buys things, that eats things, that drives things, that watches things, that prints things. We produce waste. We've got trash. But to back up a little bit, and then I'll connect the dots for us. This past week, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, at the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship General Assembly. It happens once a year. It's when churches from all over the country, and really all over the world, come to Atlanta, Georgia. We meet together. We worship together. We learn together. We eat together. And in the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, there are a range of beliefs. We are one of the more progressive churches in CBF. If you did not know that, we are. I actually had the privilege to sit on a stage at the highest attended dinner at CBF this year and describe our direction in instituting a maternity leave policy to 700 people at a dinner. Got to talk to them about why that's important. So you are leaders in CBF. But what makes us a progressive church? It's not me. It's not my sermons. There was a word progressive tied to this congregation long before I got here, long before some of you got here. Here's the thing. We are not a copy and paste of another Baptist church simply dropping in a female minister and gay people. One of the elements that we practice and we preach here drives how we think about the church. And you don't hear us say it very often, but it's what we are reading It is what we are talking about. It is what we're preaching about. It's even what our kids are learning about. Not exclusively, but a lot. 
We talk about something called liberation theology. Have you heard that term before? Liberation theology? Oh yes, Chris Sanders, I know. It's the premise that God is releasing the oppressed on the earth from the oppressor. And as the church, we have the privilege to be a part of that work. It's bringing marginalized people to justice and wholeness. It's toppling empires of oppression. It requires that we work within or at least close to some social structures or even political structures to dismantle things and talk about why they are how they are. We look at structures of white supremacy that are clear in the church and the government, structures of patriarchy or misogyny, of homophobia, of structures that are broken around poverty and hunger and housing and racism. We cannot tackle everything all at once, but we do our best to be educated and then even recognize that education in itself is a privilege. But trust and believe that God will through us, with us, and even in spite of us. God will one day break the chains of those who feel oppressed in all forms of how oppression, present, oppression presents itself. But we also do that work within our own hearts that are tainted by bias or power or wealth or racism or sexism and so on and so forth. And what drives this forward What makes this an expression of faith as a church even is that we believe that God will release the oppressed because God already has done work in, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has done it. God will do it again. There are several atonement theories. Atonement theories are basically us trying to figure out in human words or in human imageries why Jesus did what Jesus did. How did Jesus' life and actions here on earth, what did it do between humanity and God's relationship to one another? There are a lot of theories. There are people who are experts on these theories. And there are books and there are floors of libraries and entire libraries on these theories. But I want to draw your attention to one. And that's actually what I just said, that God has done it and God will do it again. It's the theory that I love to wrap my head around called Christus Victor. That is Latin for Christ the victor, meaning that Christ has overcome death always, forever. Christ is the victor. Fully, completely, salvifically for all of creation. But because I'm a good Baptist, I want to read from the book of Romans. Chapter 8, verses 18 through 21, Paul is speaking to the early church in Rome, and here's what he says. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
For the creation, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself, here's the big picture, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The book of Romans enhances or leads us into many of these atonement theories that we talk about. You might have heard of the ransom theory, substitutionary atonement, penal substitution, sacrificial lamb, moral example, satisfaction, reconciliation. There are lots of theories, and a lot of times we jump along something called the Roman road to make those all make sense. But at the end of the day, they are human words trying to describe what God is doing. Thus, we fail. However, Dr. Stanley Stowers of Brown University says this in his book, A Rereading of Romans. He says that the book of Romans has been the forge of the Western psyche. Because the West, that's us, is marked by an introspective and psychologically oriented individualism. So let me connect some of those dots. If we preach and practice and believe that we want to be or are even already a part of the movement of the Holy Spirit that releases the oppressed and the marginalized from the oppressor, where Jesus breaks chains of slavery and poverty and prejudice, where Jesus liberates those who are held captive by physical pain or mental anguish, by systems and structures of racism or sexism, then in that, we have to recognize that we have and we continue to harm the very creation with which we, as human beings, were entrusted to steward. In a rereading of Romans, Paul tells us that the creation itself will be liberated from its suffering, from its bondage to decay. And it will be brought into the fold of the children of God just like us. What we have interpreted before from Paul, even in Romans, that Paul tells us, uh, Paul tells us now that it's not just humanity that God is redeeming, but all of creation. So as progressive people of faith, we confess and we recognize with our Western psyche of individualism that we have delighted more in our convenience of the earth's resources than in our stewardship of the earth's wealth. Plainly, We have oppressed the earth collectively, individually. 
So we recognize that. We repent from that. And we do better. Because here's what, here's what scripture says in our commands to take care of the earth. In Exodus 32, the Sabbath commandment, it's not just for six days you shall, you shall work and then on the seventh you shall rest. It also says your ox and your mule may have rest on that day as well. Or just before that, when God commands every seventh year, the same cycle, timeline as humanity except for the earth, God commands that every seventh year the earth shall lay fallow so it may rest and restore itself. Or in Deuteronomy 22, there's a law where you cannot put an ox and a mule under the same yoke because they are different strength animals and it will hurt one or the other if they pull on it. Or you could go to the book of Proverbs that says a righteous man has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked are cruel. Or in early Deuteronomy in 23, God commands, this is my favorite, that when a human creates waste, that that person will cover it up so it will not contaminate the rest of the land and their camp around them. The prophets Jeremiah and Habakkuk warn against destroying nature and wildlife. In Jeremiah 9, God is described as weeping and wailing for the mountains and lamenting for the pastures and the wilderness, signifying that destroying land and even wilderness that no one can see grieves deeply the heart of God. The psalm that we read earlier describes the intricacy and intention that God created the world with. And we are selfish enough to think that Christ only redeems us. We are instructed to take rest for ourselves, but we are also instructed to remember to give the earth and the animals rest from producing for us. I doubt you came in from plowing your fields this morning with your ox and your mule. But I think the ways we care for the earth and give the earth rest as Christians is paramount in our habits as human beings. Almost a year ago today, it was actually July 23rd, 2022, I challenged our church with two challenges. One was that in two years from that date, we would not be using plastic utensils for our fellowship meals. We are getting there. To give you a progress report, we are getting there. (laughs) That involved some new kitchen supplies and some new kitchen appliances. Um, Shout out to Peggy McFall and Walt McFall who uh, purchased a dishwasher so we could have metal forks and and, uh, not disposable plates when we gather together. (laughs) Little steps like that. I also challenged us to be styrofoam, styrofoam free within two years. Now here's the challenge about that is that we have about 100 daycare kids who eat here Monday through Friday. That's a lot of styrofoam. We're working on it. We're working on it. I'm also going to let the cat out of the bag just a little bit. Sorry, Peggy, if, if, this is, if this is too early. 
But because of some, some changes with our dumpster service, here, you never thought you heard about a dumpster service in a sermon, but today's the day. We have had to look at if we need to renegotiate our waste contract. And part of that has been having a recycling dumpster here. Because we, again, we have children here who throw away milk jugs and water bottles and, and what have you. We get shipments here all the time and there's big pieces of cardboard that we throw in the dumpster because we can recycle and we do. And Cecil, and I know Charlotte has previously been our faithful stewards to pick up our recycling and take it to the Southwest Government Center on Dixie Highway to recycle. But if we do as much as we should, it cannot be one person once a month. It should be a dumpster pickup at least every week. The EPA reports that in the U.S. in 2018, there were 292 million tons of trash generated. And about half of that went into landfills. In the landfill, about 25% is food waste, about 19% is plastic, about 5% is glass, and 12% is paper or paper products or paperboard. So if we're adding everything together, that ends up being about 70% of what we trash that could be recycled, composted, reused, or repurposed. Here in the city of Louisville in 2016, Louisville Metro government did a study on the waste that we are throwing out that you are throwing out. And it tracks about the same. About two-thirds of what uh, is taken to our landfills here in Louisville, Kentucky could actually um, be taken elsewhere, recycling, composting, what have you. So each week we've been giving you homework to rest. Here's three pieces of homework for this week. One is, if you don't get recycling services to your home, find out where you can take it. And on the, in the front when you came in, and you may have been handed, to, handed uh, when you came in, there is a piece of paper that gives three local recycling centers. One is Sun Valley and Valley Station. One is the, uh, the fire um, station in Hazelwood. One is the Southwest Government Agency, which is right around the corner on Dixie Highway. They have huge dumpsters. You can put plastic, glass, recycling in. Figure out where to take it. The second piece of homework is to do one thing well. You do not have to be perfect in how you dispose of your resources. I don't think you can be. I am not. I don't expect you to be. But make one commitment. Maybe it is that you are not going to bring any more styrofoam into your home. My household made that commitment during COVID at one point (laughs) because we were bringing so much styrofoam home from takeout. Maybe it's you don't want to use reusable silverware when you're at home. Maybe it's that you don't want to, uh, you want to cut down on one, you now have the ability to cut down on one grocery bag each week. One grocery bag each week is 52 grocery bags over the course of the year. And if everyone in here does it, that's probably a box of grocery bags that Kroger does not have to reorder. Number three, 
Also in the Louisville City Waste Report, it stated that Louisville's waste system is dramatically more complicated than other cities. Surprise. A lot of programs for recycling only really exist on a small scale or in certain areas of the city. And there are also no incentives to recycle. A lot of times uh, you even have to pay for your recycling service if you want to recycle. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to figure out who your Louisville Metro representative is. I want you to give them an email or give them a call this week. Ask them why you do or if you don't get recycling services to your door. Ask if they perceive that changing. Is there anything that you can do to encourage the change? Is there anything that they can do to encourage the change? When we pay attention to what we are buying, the containers they come in, and what we are wasting, we take a tiny swing at breaking out of that individualistic Western psyche and remember that we are part of something bigger that God is doing. When we remember and act upon the belief that we are part of something bigger, we step into a mindset of humility. And I would argue we step into a mindset that is more like Christ. Although we can't fix everything, we can certainly try and trust that God has and God will. And that if nothing else, God commands us and the earth to rest. I want to read a prayer with you. It's called A Prayer for Less Waste in a Beautiful World by Jen Hatmaker. Let's pray together. God, we seem to be obsessed with our own health. We are immunized, checked, prodded, measured, tested, and examined since the day we were born. Cuts get band-aids, twisted ankles get ice. We watch for lumps and bumps and moles. Why? Because God gave us spectacular bodies and we value them. But as certainly as God created human beings in God's image, God first created the earth. With the same care that God designed us, God crafted hydrangeas, freshwater rapids, and hummingbirds. God balanced ecosystems with precision and climates with beauty. God integrated colors and smells and sounds that would astound humanity. The details of Earth's design are extraordinary. So why don't we care for the Earth anywhere near to the degree we care for our bodies? Why don't we examine and steward creation with the same tenacity? Why do we think of ourselves superior to the rest of creation? Creator God, awaken us to the rest your earth needs. May we minimize our waste on this planet so the beauty of your creation may shine for generations to come. May the flowers, the bees, the oceans, the ice caps sing refrains of your grace and goodness for all time. And may we bear witness to the love of your intricate creation and what we choose to buy, sell, use, waste, and recycle. Amen.